Well, let us turn our attention then to our portion of Scripture. It's so simple that I can actually uh, say it instead of reading it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's just the second part of John 1.29. And you'll recall that these words were spoken by John the Baptist. In a few moments, we're going to read more of John chapter 1. We're going to look at it in more of its context. But first, let me try to describe the scene that was happening to help you clear away the distractions of a busy week and think about what was happening those years ago along the banks of the Jordan River. John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, a prophet in the wilderness with an interesting diet of locusts and honey, interesting clothing made of camel's hair, he had a thriving ministry along those banks of the river. He pointed people to God. You might even call it a revival. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that all of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to him. Many people coming out. These would be large parts of what we would know as modern-day Israel. And what were they going out there for? What were they making this journey for? They were going to be baptized. And what was this baptism for? We're told in Mark's uh, gospel that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, forgiveness of sins for the forsaking and forgiveness of sins to turn away, to repent from sinful ways toward God. And this is an amazing display by John the Baptist of humility and God-centered focus. He takes the attention off of himself, despite how many people are coming to him. The purpose of his ministry was to point out one who comes after him. There was a greater one than him, even though he was doing so much himself for God. In effect, what he was saying is that only God, by sending the promised Messiah, provides the forgiveness of sins. And that is man's greatest need. John pointed people, not to himself, but to Christ. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 1. And I'll be reading starting in verse 19. John chapter 1, verse 19 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, 
I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now we come to our passage, our verse, and listen for how John describes Christ coming. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. We've just heard God's holy word. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by your light that we see light, so send forth your light and your truth to your church here. Send forth your light to those gathered here in your presence. Grant us, O Lord, knowledge of your divine words, understanding of your gospel. Show us the riches of your heavenly gifts. Indwell us with your Holy Spirit and give us the ability to keep your commandments, to know and do your will. Let the word preached here and around the world on this your day bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me ask you a question about presidents, presidential history. Do you know which American president is the only one on record to have become a professing Christian while in office? What I mean by that is, which president was baptized and received into church membership upon a confession of faith while he was in office? I'll let you think for a second. You don't have to call it out loud. Well, if you thought of Dwight David Eisenhower, you would have guessed correctly. Let me read a little bit of a clip from uh, a newspaper or writing about his memorial service at the end of his life. The late Dwight David Eisenhower had the distinction of being the only American president to have been baptized and received into church membership upon confession of faith while in office. The memorial service in the Washington Cathedral witnessed strongly to his faith. There can be no mistaking of it. The simple service, the hymns sung by choir and congregation, the scriptures read, the prayers given, the Apostles' Creed, 
They all bore witness to Ike's faith in the Lord. The leaders of 100 nations were present. They heard this witness. More than that, national television brought the witness before the American people. We were not only reminded of Eisenhower's faith, but of his humility. There might have been much pomp and ceremony. Eisenhower was the commander of the Allied forces for the invasion of Europe. He was one of the world's most decorated military men. This reminded me of John the Baptist's ministry in that sense of his humility and faith. See, John the Baptist's ministry stands in great contrast to the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who we saw in our passage that came out and questioned John the Baptist. John saw the real problem. He knew the real need. And so he points to Christ, the Messiah, who takes away sin. Why is it so important to have sin taken away? Let's consider this condition of sin a little further. John the Evangelist. It can be very confusing as we read through these in John chapter 1. You've got John the Baptist talking, but John the Evangelist is writing. So there's two Johns here to try to keep track of. John the Evangelist, who wrote other letters to the church further down in your New Testament, He's the author that tells us that sin is lawlessness, a very, the most simple definition. You know, the thing about that is you could be tempted to think it's like a lawlessness on the highway. If I had been a few minutes later, I would have been tempted to break that speed limit coming across Route 67. And you know what? I could say, hey, maybe the police were all out, not out there today. I got away with it, so I didn't break the law. But sin is not like that one bit. There's no breaking God's law and getting away with it. Our shorter catechism helps us see the uh, condition of sin and the significance of the problem. In question 15, it talks about a fall from a high estate to a low estate. It points out this idea of Adam's original sin and all the others that follow after down to this day. You see, humanity hit rock bottom quickly, lost communion with God, went under God's wrath and curse, and experiences miseries in this life and death itself. Even goes on to add the pains of hell forever. Wouldn't you have liked to hear then this good news that John the Baptist pointed to? Wouldn't you like to have been able to heard, hear him crying out along the banks of the Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? John's voice, guided by the Holy Spirit, knew that rock bottom was not the whole story. For he knew in the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ, rock bottom can be a firm foundation. What John knew, God wants you to hear this morning. In the Lamb of God, yes, in Jesus Christ, the sin question is answered. Sin's condition is cured. 
and sin's chaos has been calmed. And so he proclaimed along the banks of the Jordan near Bethany, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let us consider this verse in more detail now, and we'll look at three ideas. First, beholding Christ as the Lamb of God. Second, believing the good news that Christ takes away sin. And thirdly, bringing Christ to the world, bringing Christ to those in need. In short, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Believe the Lamb, behold the Lamb, and bring the Lamb. Well, this idea of behold the Lamb is a word we don't say that often today. Some of the newer translations, you might have one of them, even have gone to uh, the word look or something along these lines because it's kind of outdated to say behold like that. Very common in Scripture. Uh, The phrase, did you notice, was said twice. We saw it in both verse 29 and then also in verse 36. Now, one of those, the first one, verse 29, was in public, it seems. It wasn't directed to any individual listener, just the crowd there, those that could hear John. The second seems to be more direct in a more private setting, where he walks by and says it to two of his disciples. And there is good wisdom in that for us today, that we too should be able to behold Christ in public, in our corporate worship, together as the church, as well as in private, in our homes, and in our daily lives, individually. This idea of behold really does mean to look, to pay attention, to take notice. Um, I was thinking about this one. One of the things we do in Dwaynesburg, we, I have five children, and we drive around, and we look for animals. We look for deer, the youngest ones especially like looking for maybe a fox or something on the side of the road. But it always seems that the driver or the people in the front seat are the ones that see them. And the little ones that want to see them the most in the back seat are a little too low. And they get frustrated. So what do you do as the driver? You try to help them. You say, look, look, there it is. Look over there. We start coming up with things like driver's side, passenger side. You know, you're trying to come up with the best way. So they can see this. That's the kind of pointing out that John was trying to do. But it wasn't just a fox on the side of the road or it wasn't a deer. John the Baptist, as part of three days of witnessing, you'll notice in the beginning of verse 29 it says the next day. And then again at the beginning of verse 35 it says the next day. So there's this repeated days of witnessing out here along the Jordan. He's talking about Jesus coming, and then suddenly Jesus comes out of the wilderness, surviving the temptation of the devil, ministered after fasting, ministered to by angels. And John, there he is. That's the one I was talking about was coming. Look, this is the one I've been telling you about. And he uses this phrase, the Lamb of God. What first comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, the Lamb of God? I, in preparing this week, I asked around my dinner table what it means. 
Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? I received multiple answers. Maybe as many as people at the table. It didn't seem like it was unanimous. I, I guess it isn't, doesn't jump into our head exactly what it is. And maybe that's because it's a little bit more deeper. It means many things. I want to look at a few of those now then. The first could be considered the character of a lamb or the character of Jesus based on some of the uh, descriptions of a lamb such as gentleness or meekness or purity. The idea of the, the uh, lambs without blemish or spot. Another one was closely, uh, I think, described in your second song from this morning, if I have it here. Lamb of God, you are now seated high upon your Father's throne. All your gracious work completed. All your mighty victory won. We just sung of a victorious Lamb. This is the Lamb you would read about in the book of Revelation. The Lamb as a mighty conqueror, a judge and a ruler, a victorious Lamb slain, but resurrected and ruling. So we have this character aspect. We have this victorious Lamb. And now there's two more that are kind of closely related. You could almost group them into one thing. First of all, sacrificial Lamb. And secondly, a Passover lamb. The idea of sacrificial lamb may, we may be most familiar with from Isaiah chapter 53, where in verse 7 we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Old Testament Jewish person would be familiar with lamb sacrifices. Things were much different in the Jewish religion, in the temple with a constant flow of sacrifices required in the law of Moses. Maybe it even points back to a story early in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac. Do you recall that story? Abraham is told by God and obediently follows to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And Isaac follows him. And some of the key verses, uh, and you can look this up later in Genesis chapter 22 if you're interested, but some of the key verses, uh, 7 and 8, uh, we, we read, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. If you follow along in the story, just before Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, 
lamb, a ram was provided. God himself will provide for the lamb. Now, it's helpful to think about the purpose of all of these sacrifices. One of the things we quickly think of in the Christian church is they point to Christ. And that is true. Christ said it himself, and that is wonderful. The sacrifices also do something related to the holiness of God. That is that they restore purity required to be in the presence of a holy God by removing sin, and not only from the people, but just from the presence of the area where God will dwell. So they remove sin, and you're able to be in the presence of a holy God through these, which were pointers to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That's the sacrificial lamb aspect to it. Now, the author, John the Evangelist, I started remembering these this week as John the B and John the E. John the E actually wrote about three Passovers in the three years of Christ's ministry on earth. And therefore, it seems that John the Evangelist, it's important in his gospel that the Passover theme is prominent. By covering each one, and it, uh, I'll, let me, you can look these up as well. Uh, Passovers are brought up in Je- uh, John chapter 2, 6, and then almost all of his gospel is spent in that final week of Jesus, 11 through 19. So these Passovers are very significant in the Gospel of John. You'll recall the Passover being the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt under the terrible uh, slavery and bondage of Pharaoh. And why were they delivered out by God? He heard their cry and brought them out so that they could be in the presence of the Lord and worship Him and walk with Him. So they are delivered, and they celebrate that first Passover, and then every year after that they would celebrate this as a remembrance of that deliverance from Egypt. In the wilderness, God commanded a tabernacle be built, and that would be moved to follow the presence of God in a cloud by day and a fire by night. Each year, celebrating many feasts, and the Passover. But what about in the New Testament? Paul makes the connection in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the most obvious one probably we have, when Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's explicitly named the Passover lamb. There's one other Old Testament story to bring to mind that helps picture this idea of beholding the Lamb of God. Do you remember the, one of the story of the bronze serpent? It occurs in uh, Numbers chapter 21, if you have time this week to read it again. Moses and the people are in the wilderness, and they come under the attack of poisonous snakes that are biting the people. And God commands that a bronze serpent be lifted up 
And the only way they can avoid dying from the snake bites, the fatal bites, are to look and live. Look at the bronze serpent and live. And just two chapters later in John's Gospel, this story comes back. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, I'm going to flip over and read John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the better cure for the bite of sin. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lamb to behold. This week, as you reflect on this, you can see God's love in sending that Lamb to you, to providing that Lamb himself. And sure, you can trust him because he is meek, he is gentle, he is humble, he is pure. Not only was the Lamb sent by God, the Lamb was God. So you are beholding very God in the flesh, a divine Christ, a divine Lamb. There's also much encouragement to come from thinking of Christ as the sacrificial lamb. Because he is the sacrificial lamb, you can now see him as a great high priest, one that offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to be reconciled to God, to be able to come into his presence. And it doesn't just stop. He makes continual intercession for you today and this week. What a great comfort and encouragement to know that you can behold him interceding for you from heaven. And lastly, because we can behold a Passover lamb, you can be confident that he can deliver you from your sins. He can bring you through any situation. Like ancient Israel, he can bring you into his presence to worship and walk with him. Okay, so we've talked about beholding the Lamb of God. In doing so, it helps us really see how God came in the flesh. And it's good news that that sin question is answered. We behold the Lamb of God. That's the subject in our sentence, in our, in our portion of the verse today. Now let's turn our attention to the verb in the sentence, his actions, the lamb's actions. What is it that we see the lamb doing? Or what are we told that he's doing? And what is a proper response? In considering these questions, then, we'll find our next idea, believing the good news that Christ takes away sin. 
When you first hear about taking something away, and you have little children anyway, you might think of how you have to take stuff from them all the time. They're, maybe they're going to break it, or they're using something inappropriately, um, in, inappropriately to another sibling. This is not the taking away of a toy from a misbehaving child that we're talking about. A child who might go and get something else and do the same thing over again. We're talking about something different than that. We're talking about a complete removal, a forgiveness, a removal or taking away of the guilt and the punishment due for those sins. That's why the psalmist can proclaim in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is why uh, a prophet like Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations could write, the mercies of the Lord are never exhausted. The mercies of the Lord are never spent. They are new each morning. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ taking away sins, allows for us to have new mercies and a clean slate on life. Christ takes our sin and buries them takes our sins and buries them as far as the east is from the west. An incredible thing about this is he takes them away and gives eternal life in return. Sin is taken away, eternal life given to us. Now, maybe you're wondering... How does this work? If sins are taken away, how come sin still exists? I still, I still sin. I turn on the news. I see sin. I go to work. I come across sin or, a temptation, or have temptations to sin. Children sin. Parents sin. Seems like it's not taken away. It still exists. How could it be taken away? Like so many things in the New Testament, there is an already and a not yet aspect to it. Sin already taken away, and at the same time, not permanently taken away in such a way that we wouldn't experience it. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. The literal translation here would be that the Lamb of God is the one who is taking away the sin of the world. It's a present tense. He's doing that. He's always doing that in that sense. It speaks to Christ's, what we call, active obedience. The fact that he took away sin by following all of God's laws in a sincere and genuine way. Without a mistake, there was no slip-up. How long can we go without a mistake or a slip-up? But in his obedience, it was perfectly done. It also speaks to what we call a passive obedience, that he suffered and died and experienced cruelty despite complete innocence, despite that act of obedience. Because he had no sin, he was then qualified to lay down his life for you. And this really points to the idea of a substitution. That's why the Apostle Peter would write, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous 
for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or the Apostle Paul would say to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so sin is taken away on the cross. How wonderful are the words of Christ. It is finished. Already taken away. Sins past, present, and future at the cross. But better yet, there's also hope to look something to look forward to. There's, there's a not yet aspect of the sin being taken away. I just mentioned Christians still sin. But there's something important to distinguish here. They don't continue sinning. We don't continue in that practice. We must turn away from that. Maybe you could think of it like a fish out of water. It can be out of water a little bit, but it needs to get back in that water. It can't live long uh, outside of that environment. And a Christian does not want to live long at all. If Not at all, but if they do find themselves slipping into that, they need to get back into God's way. So part of this plan, part of this not yet aspect, allows for Christians to repent as they grow, as they continue a process of sanctification, that Christ takes away sin, past, present, and future, and also continues to transform hearts through the Christian walk. John, in his first letter to the church, writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We'll get back to that world theme uh, in a minute. But that propitiation is a big word that tells us that God accepts the sacrifice of Christ and turns away his wrath. The hope of the not yet is that one day he will return and in a twinkling of an eye all will be changed then sin will be no more. Taken away permanently. Taken away on the cross. Taken away permanently. Okay, I want to give you a picture that will serve as a reminder, maybe even this week, of this, of, ta of the sins being taken away, of this good news, okay? All right. I, uh, I think it's very safe to say everyone here takes out garbage from the kitchen at some point in time, right? Everyone does that. Many of you likely take the garbage and recycling bins and push them out to the curb, or you'll be driving and see them out on the curb. Okay, so the next time garbage day comes, think of this. Just like you are removing the trash, Christ removes sin. Christ and only Christ can take away that sin, take out that garbage. Now, there's a big difference here. You get to take the garbage out. You have, perhaps have a company that comes and takes it away. It's a little bit different with sin. Sin separates us from God. 
at such a distance that you can't just do it yourself. You can't just take it out to the curb. The, the gap is too far. I, I kind of had a picture of a thousand year long driveway to take that out. You'd fall short. You'd never make it there. You would try. You'd start pushing that sin garbage to the curb. But at some point, not there, falling short. The good news is that you don't have to push that sin garbage all the way to that thousand-year-long driveway walk. Nope. Christ comes to you, and he says, I'll take away your sin. I'll lay down my life for you. I'll go to the cross for you. I'll conquer death for you. And he says, follow me. The Lord Jesus Christ is yours to believe, yours to trust, and yours to follow. Let me ask then, do you have that gospel peace that comes from your sins being taken away? Have you experienced that gospel peace? Have you trusted in Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? It's by His grace. It's freely offered. Believe the Lamb. And perhaps you need to get back on the path of trusting God Maybe there is a temptation that you struggle with and you need to get back. There's good news in that as well. Just like that fish that needs to get back to water, Christ the great shepherd calls his sheep back to the fold. You will definitely be forgiven and welcomed with open arms, repenting and and trusting in the Savior. Well, the sin condition then is cured by believing in the Lamb of God, by trusting that Christ takes away your sin. There have been some that have had an objection to this at this point. There have been some that this has frustrated, and they've, over years of church history, said, I think this is bad. I think God did something bad to his son. This is some kind of abuse that it it must be immoral for God to do that. And it's something that you have to listen to if somebody honestly has that and work through it with them, sure. We're not going to answer that objection here, but I want to make sure we point out Christ was without sin. He was God. He was sent by God. And he was condemned, though completely innocent, on the cross. There was great injustice and unfairness and cruelty in that yet he laid down his life for his sheep, for his friends. Well, we've talked about beholding and believing the Lamb. There's one more response uh, to our text that we need to consider. And that's the idea of bringing Christ or bringing the Lamb to those in need. When we read in our verse, Christ takes away the sin of the world, what do we mean? The world, the phrase the world in the New Testament can mean more than one thing. So uh, it even can mean multiple things in John. For example, when we read about the world in Scripture, it doesn't always mean every person. John is not teaching that everyone's sins are forgiven just because of the Lamb of God. There must be 
saving faith and work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration that precedes faith for that to exist. Sometimes the world means something like we might think of as a, a system, the world system, the way the world operates and runs, the way things work in the real world. John's not talking about that here. He's talking about nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. He's pointing out something that's great news to almost all of us, that it's not just limited to the Jewish people. It's not limited to people that follow the Jewish religion. That it's in Christ, it will be opening up to both Jew and Gentile. In other words, every people, every tribe, every tongue. This is the way for all people, all places, and all the time in history. In this we learn that there are not multiple paths to God. Not multiple paths to eternal life. Christ alone is the way. John would later write in his gospel that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, there was an army general in the 1960s named Earl Wheeler. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and became the army chief of staff. Despite his high rank, he was traveling in the field and witnessed the induction of a recruit on an inspection trip. The young man was being questioned by a sergeant. Did you go to grammar school? The recruit answered, yes, sir. I also went to high school, graduated from Knox College. I took graduate study at Michigan and Harvard, where I got a Ph.D. The sergeant, unfazed, reached for a rubber stamp, inking it, stamped a questionnaire with one word, literate. You see, all of those good things, all of those accolades didn't make a significant difference there. And like that new recruit, all of man's good works, past accolades, all of all the worldly success and prosperity they might have outside of Christ will be of no value, will be in vain. Christ alone, the Lamb of God, can provide the true prosperity, truly good works, enabling you to do those, and eternal life. Well, this is certainly one of the reasons why it is so urgently needed in our homes, our neighborhoods, our land, our world, to bring the Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is your lamb to bring to others, to bring to those in need. And let's finally look this morning at a few of those ways we could do that. We don't even need to look outside the walls of the church for the first one. That is to say, we can bring the lamb by edifying others within the church. We can build them up. We can encourage them. We can help them. It can start right here with, the, with one another, loving one another, 
in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our actions. You have a great opportunity to be that closest person to bringing the Lamb to other brothers and sisters in the church. But clearly we're talking uh, about evangelism as well when we talk about bringing the Lamb. Evangelism these days seems to take effort. It takes effort to get to know people that might be different than us, that might not believe what we do, that might be at serious enmity with, with us as Christians and as God. But knowing that we can bring the Lamb should give us great courage and perseverance in, in sharing Christ. One of the best ways to get started is to have a list of people to be praying for. And then don't give up on it. Let me offer one more way. This is a way that especially seems to be needed in the northeastern United States based on the surveys that take place. And that is education. What I mean by education is I mean defending the faith, defending the orthodox faith. If you're called to that, if you're called to study and read more, if you have those opportunities, if God provides those opportunities to uh, work with others, to share biblical literacy, I think I think the things that happened, the, the snowflake that's still here in the room with reading camp are showing exactly this uh, idea of educating. We're seeing a lot of people in the Presbytery as well that are using the, the one-to-one Bible reading plan. Many people now are not familiar with the Bible, and there's a great opportunity. And what I mentioned before, I was talking about the surveys that come out that show this area usually wins the survey for least biblical knowledge or least church. So this is a, people are not familiar with their Bibles, and, and um, perhaps that's an opportunity for those of you called to that kind of thing to help educate and defend the Orthodox faith to bring the Lamb. Make sure you cover all of these things, the edification, the evangelism, the education in prayer, and pray that your desire would be to see the Lamb brought to those in need. You have a wonderful opportunity in this. You have a great purpose because the Lamb is also your shepherd and He will lead you to people that He cares for. You can bring His love, His goodness, His salvation, His deliverance to others. In a world struggling in sin's chaos, you have the message to calm the storm. Okay, we've worked through the three different ideas. Beholding the Lamb, believing the Lamb, and bringing the Lamb of God. I don't know if any of you followed the 43rd General Assembly this year in Chattanooga for the PCA. It was an interesting subject came up during the week. It was about reconciliation, especially with southern churches. Um, The discussion was about uh, quite a few years ago in the times of civil rights movements and behaviors. And one of the most moving parts of General Assembly was right at the end when they had an extended prayer time. One of the founders 
one of the few founders remaining in the PCA, stood up and started a theme of reconciliation, of repentance, of restoration. And then the line, this is one microphone at the PCA, there might be a thousand, General Assembly, there might be a thousand people in the, in the, uh, in the convention center, and there would be multiple microphones. And every microphone had a line of pastors, or teaching elders, and ruling elders lining up to pray. And it was an extended and beautiful time of prayer. And the theme that emerged from the prayers was a theme of restoration, renewal, and reviving. There are exciting times coming for this church. Lord willing, those prayers that we've been talking about will be answered. You will call your next pastor. But don't wait for that. Don't wait for that. Don't put all the hope on the call or the next chapter for Hope Church. I'm in no way of accusing you all of doing that. I'm encouraging you to burn brighter for Christ this week. Burn brighter for Christ each week. My prayer for you all is that you may behold the Lamb. That you may behold Christ more and more each day. May you always believe in him and be bringing him to those who have not yet known him. Maybe they don't know the answer to the sin question. Maybe they haven't been cured of their sin condition. Maybe they haven't experienced the calm of, from the chaos of sin. You have that opportunity to bring that lamb to them. So may God bless you as you behold, believe, and bring the lamb. Amen. I believe our